We're uh, in 2 Corinthians 3. There were some questions that uh, rose this week, the last two weeks actually, about uh, some of the uh, things that, ways that I've been speaking about the Old Covenant. Excuse me. And uh, I just wanted to say that um, that's because Reformed people tend to emphasize the continuity between the Old and New Covenants and the unity. And uh, yet we're here at a, because many other Christians emphasize the discontinuity. But here we are at a passage which is talking about the discontinuity. And so that's what's before us. And it's important for us to you know, accurate, try to accurately portray the continuity and discontinuity between old and new. But um, honestly, there are also some uh, reformed disagreements on the issue of the relationship between the old between the covenants and some rather difficult issues. And um, <clears throat> these uncertainties and disagreements pretty certainly uh, existed even at the time when they wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith because that document um, very carefully states just about the only things that everyone agrees on and nothing more. Um, But there are many questions it doesn't answer. And I know that some of you would love for me to explain the differences and disagreements, disagreements and tell you where I stand and why, but if I did that I would lose the rest of you. So I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to try to preach in a way that the disagreements don't matter. That applies to both, no matter where you're coming from. I'd be happy to talk to people um, offline about these issues, but I'm not going to do it in the sermon. Um, And then, before I read the passage... I'm going to, I just want to remind you again what I said last week, that if you weren't here two weeks ago, the Memorial Day sermon, the end of May, last sermon in May, I urge you to listen to that sermon to help you understand um, this passage and the bigger setting of it. Why Paul says what he does. It's called um, Judaizers in Corinth. <clears throat> and if that's, that uh, title is intimidating to you. I explain everything in the sermon. Okay, let's read our passage. We're uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 11. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end... Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. 
We talked about how Paul suddenly breaks into a discussion of the superiority of the new covenant and the inferiority of the old covenant right in the context when he's responding to the, his opponents in the church at Corinth. And we talked about how you can tell from the rest of the letter that that's because Paul's opponents are Judaizers. That is, <clears throat> they're people who are trying to allow Jesus to be Messiah, the Messiah, but maintain that faith in Jesus in the context of the Old Covenant, in the context of the Mosaic Law. Now, in this passage, Paul contrasts the Old and the New Covenant. I have a chart. Do we have that? There he is. Um, just to help us to see it on, on uh, visually. Here we go. Um, he says of the Old Covenant, that it is a covenant of the letter, and that the letter kills, whereas the New is a covenant of the Spirit, and the Spirit gives life. The Old Covenant is a ministry of death, the New the ministry of the Spirit. Some of this is just implied um, by one being stated and the other, the other being implied to be the opposite of that. The Old Covenant is the letter, written in letters engraved on stones, referring to the Ten Commandments. The New Covenant is written with God's Spirit on human hearts. The Old Covenant was, came with some glory. The New Covenant came with much more glory. The Old Covenant, had, the glory it had was a fading glory. The glory of the New Covenant is a permanent glory. The Old Covenant was a ministry of condemnation. The New Covenant was a ministry of righteousness. And again, the Old Covenant, that which fades away, and the New Covenant, that which remains. We're going to actually talk about that part of it next week. The fading, the temporary part of the Old Covenant. The fact that the Old Covenant has come to an end. So that's a theme we haven't talked about now. We're going to talk about that next week. So the Jesus that these men were preaching, and they were preaching Jesus, but they weren't preaching the same Jesus that Paul was preaching. He says this in 2 Corinthians 11.4. The real Jesus, the one Paul preaches, has so much more glory than Moses that in comparison, the Old Covenant has no glory at all. Paul understood well the Old Covenant mentality. He lived in it. He'd grown up in it. Until that day when Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus. And once he saw and came to understand the glory of Christ, he knew that to confine this glorious Christ to the context of the Old Covenant was out of the question. But now his opponents have tried to do just that, to add Christ to the Old Covenant context, but he won't fit. And so Paul is trying to show why he won't fit. It's the same thing that Jesus did when he, spoke, when he confronted the Pharisees. He, Paul is saying similar things to the Judaizers who are like Pharisees who acknowledge Christ but not 
but a Christ of their own conception. You see, it's different when the, the Pharisees that lived in the day of Jesus, they had to face the real Jesus. There was no way they could just say, well, this, this is who Jesus is, because he was there in the flesh in front of them. But now that Jesus is gone, and there's no one there to point to or to talk to, they could say, ah, this is who Jesus is. And it could be a matter of dispute, a matter of argument. And that's what was going on. That's why the Judaizers could accept Christ, in quotes, but the Pharisees couldn't. You see, Christianity doesn't mean grafting Jesus into Old Covenant Judaism. It's a new, he came to establish a new covenant. The Old Covenant is over. The new wine demands new wineskins. And the new wineskins are not just for the sake of being new, but because the old wineskins are inadequate to hold the new wine. That's what Jesus said. Jesus came and he turned the wine of the old, I'm sorry, the water of the old into the wine of the new. And it demands new wineskins. It's a really amazing how much the New Testament talks about this theme of the danger of clinging to the old covenant ways. It's really what the whole book of Hebrews is about. And it's written to the, the Hebrew Christians. You know, the ones who you would think would be most struggling with this. Is all this, though, really irrelevant to us? There's no one around today who's arguing, at least no one significant, for return to the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant God made with Moses. Well, I think... God inspired and preserved all these parts of the New Testament partly because he knew that down through history there would be a perpetual struggle in the church with old covenant ways of thinking. There are many ways that this manifests itself. There are some which are built right into the doctrine of various groups and churches. Uh, those who embrace a works Christianity where you know God helps you but really your salvation is based on what you do with God's help not based on what Christ did upon the cross. There's dead Christianity where the doctrine is just doctrine. But there's, there, there's no personal knowledge of Christ. There's Christianity as a cultural religion. Just like any religion, you know, has cultural forms where people just grow up in it and that's just what they do and believe and, and uh, it's just what they do. It's just a culture. And we're all vulnerable to various old covenant Christian traps, ways that we might be tempted to try to fit Jesus into an old covenant attitude. For instance, 
if we focus on the commands of God, but give little attention to our magnificent Savior, if we focus on obedience and forget about the Holy Spirit, who is the one who enables us, empowers us to fulfill God's law, if we dwell on the outward, but ignore the inward, instead of giving priority, like Jesus did, to what's in the heart. If we emphasize the form of our faith, the, the uh, ceremonies and the structures, and not the content. If we forget the greatest responsibility and privilege of our lives is to know Christ, like Paul said over and over. Now, this affects us in all sorts of ways. Obviously, it's most natural to think about how it affects us as, as a church or as churches. You know, and uh, there's, there, it's easy to, for churches to get into this talking about the rules and the commandments and the duties, but very little to talk about Christ and the, His forgiveness and the Holy Spirit and His help. Um, Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book called The Whole Christ, where he was just focusing on the Marrow Controversy, which was an obscure little controversy that occurred um, you know, over 100 years ago. Um, where there was a, a struggle in, within the Presbyterian Church in Scotland um, over, and it was a very subtle thing. It was as if um, there were those who were completely orthodox and they believed the doctrines true, right? But the, the smell of their faith was like the Old Covenant. And their their intolerance, their intolerance, and their um, their focus, and their joy. They were they showed that they were um, really wrongheaded in many ways. And this, you know, all sorts of churches get get into kinds of legalism and moralism, where just being good people is really the goal, not knowing Christ. I mean, obviously. God transforms us and moves us to do that which is good but that's not the focus is to become good people as if our, our uh, you know, being good citizens is, is really what religion is all about not Christian faith then there's you know the worship and Hebrews 12 has this great passage which specifically seems to be addressing the danger of old covenant worship in a Christian context. Listen to these verses. This is 18 to 24. For you have not come, you start contrasting um, what new covenant worship is in Christ with the worship of the Jews at Mount Sinai. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. 
For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, this so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come, not to that, that's not what your worship's like, but you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, you know, we want to go back and understand that better. You can, you can find other places to do that. But the point is, this contrast is, he's saying, yeah. you know, we don't have old covenant worship. We have new covenant worship. And it's very different. It looks different. It feels different. It smells different. No. This, this is something that can manifest itself in our parenting. And if uh, that's something you want to think about more, I couldn't encourage you more to, to get the book Age of Opportunity by Paul David Tripp, which really talks about what New Covenant parenting looks like. And it's very different than the, what's natural to us sometimes. I know for me when I read that book, it was enormously convicting and, and exposed a, way, a, a wrong way of me uh, thinking about parenting. But I need to tell you why all this old covenant Christianity stuff is so important to me. In 1997, the Lord began to show me that in many ways, I was an old covenant Christian and husband and father and pastor. And really over the last 21 years... I've been trying to rid myself by God's grace of patterns uh, that, that are more old covenant in nature and take on uh, that which is more new covenant in nature. And uh, I've made progress. I'm still a work in progress. Um, and I pray that as time goes on, that work continues. And, um, but I wanted to share with you some of the ways that God showed me in my life that I was an Old Testament Christian um, in case that's helpful for you. Um, the first thing that I realized, and I tried to do this a little bit chronologically, was that um, it was very easy for me to notice what was wrong with people and what was wrong with a sermon and what was wrong with a book and what was wrong with my wife before I noticed what was good and what was wonderful. And, um, you know, that, there was just a bent in me. That was the first thing I noticed is the problem, the wrong, the way that it wasn't quite lining up. The second thing that, that happened is that I realized, and this came through reading a wonderful book by Maurice Roberts called The Thought of God, I realized that I had no heart for revival. He proved in the book that it was a Christian obligation to have a heart for revival. And I tried praying for revival and I realized I have no desire for a revival. What's wrong with me? The Bible says I'm supposed to do, have this and I don't. 
I was content to maintain things the way they were. To protect what I had instead of fight to progress. Fight for the progress of the kingdom in the world. Paul talks in Acts 20 and elsewhere about his, his ministry with the people. And he said, I met with you with tears. You know, he was striving and anxious to, to see the Lord's work in their lives. And I found that lacking in my own. Then I realized that I, I preached a sermon in 1998 called The Relentless Challenger, a sermon of apology and repentance. The Relentless Challenger. In fact, it's on our website, I believe, if you want to go read that sermon though it's 20 years old, um, realized that, you know, I, I, uh, there's nothing wrong with challenging. The Bible challenges very often. But it doesn't just challenge. It's not a relentless challenge. There's, there's comfort and there's encouragement and there's hope and there's forgiveness all mixed in, you know, so it's a beautiful mixture but it was, uh, I went to a church once in 2005 when we were on sabbatical. And, uh, and you know, it was a, they had a, a church similar to this in some ways. And they had a great singing time and we really enjoyed it. And then the preacher got up and uh, he just chided the congregation up one side and down the other. And the Lord was like saying, oh no, I, this isn't the way it looks like. When I'm preaching, is it is this is this the way it, it is? And I and I the Lord, you know, helped me to see that that uh, it, that's wrong to to have that kind of unrelenting pattern of challenging. Um, I also realized that I had no heart for outreach. You know, I cared about my family and my friends and my church but I really didn't have much of a heart for the people out there and part of that was I wasn't a friend of sinners you know, Jesus is referred to as the friend of sinners here he was much better than me much more right about everything than me and yet sinners were drawn to him and I found sinners never wanted to come my way. They always wanted to head out the door. What is it? You know, I, there's something about me where, and I'm not saying that every sinner was drawn to Jesus. It certainly wasn't. We know the, the thief on the cross who wasn't saved, he wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He wanted, but many sinners were. But where were the sinners that were drawn to me? Like you find many of the thieves on the cross were spitting at me, and but where are the sinners who were drawn to me? Where are the people who are coming to me and saying, "What is the reason for the hope that you have within you?" As Peter talks about, you know, that's the idea: is that we have a life that exudes hope, and it makes people wonder, "What do you have?" I need it. I don't have a long, I, I didn't have a long line of people that were knocking at my door asking me what was the hope 
within me. There is a sense of superiority that dominated my the way that I viewed many others. I realized that my ministry was fear-driven more than it was joy-driven. I really liked what Tom Holliday said at the retreat when he said that uh, when he referred to presenting the law as if it's the gospel and presenting the gospel as if it's the law. It's like, wow, that, that was me. Hopefully it's not me anymore, but and I'm sure it still is in some ways, but presenting the law as if it's the gospel, presenting the, the law as if this is where our hope is, and presenting the gospel as if this is what you must do. Like the Pharisees, it's easy to strain out the camel, the, the gnat, and swallow the camel. You know, to, to be punctilious about certain biblical issues, but then without even realizing it, you have camels walking through the door that you haven't, that you haven't prevented and made an issue of at all. Um, and just a last one a lack of transparency approachability compassion um, and uh, lack of passion for people not striving to listen to get to know people to find out what their struggles are and so these these are kinds of things that I began to realize and I could go into more but I'm not going to this morning because of time but uh, this is why to me it's so important that we not just pass over this section where it talks about where Paul struggles with old covenant Christianity and, uh, and I don't, I'm not saying that all these things are equally important I mean there's, there's lots of different varieties and some of which are more fatal than others but they're all a problem and uh, all need to be um, focused on and dealt with and repented of and uh, pray that God would help us to change. But I, um, though Old Testament Christianity is a major emphasis here in Paul's letter in 2 Corinthians 3, there is one more important theme that I don't want to neglect and that's the superior glory of the new covenant. That's really his point here. The gospel is beautiful, exciting, it's good news, it's redemptive, it's restorative. Christ has come and he's had victory and he poured out his spirit upon his people. The blessings which had been given in small measure in Christ have now been given in abundance. We are the people upon whom the ends of the ages have come, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.11. 
the Old Testament prophets much more godly than we. The Old Testament prophets longed to see what we see but couldn't. For as Peter says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These are even things into which angels long to look, he says. You see, the coming of Jesus changed everything. His transforming powers brought us from death to abundant life. He has brought fullness and joy. In him, light and life and love have burst upon the earth. By sending his spirit, he made it so that the rivers of living water flow from our innermost being. He is to be praised, therefore, above everything else. To put him on a par with the best of the world, even Moses, is a shameful insult to Jesus. To portray him as someone who merely came to reinforce what God had already given is to miss the point. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's Romans 8, 3 and 4. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And to us it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, how blessed are our eyes that they see and how blessed are our ears that they hear. If you have put your faith in Christ, you have been blessed to be made a member of the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace and of rest. And Jesus calls us to come to him, to rest in his care, to rest in what he has done, not in what we do. We have a real savior, not a theoretical one, not a historical figure, not a distant helper. We have a real savior who is with us. Before he came, there was an interesting debate about who was the greatest. Was it Abraham? Was it Moses? Perhaps David or Elijah or Daniel? But when Jesus comes, it ends the debate. All the others bow down and worship him. They don't just acknowledge that he is first. They worship him. It's not enough to say he's a prophet. It's not enough to say he's a great Bible hero. He is the great I am in human flesh. The Lord and the Savior. The way, the truth, and the life. He is our strong hope. 
And it, I was thinking about this. It's actually impossible to exaggerate his glory. There's nothing you can say about Jesus which is, that's going a little too far. You can't overstate who he is and what he's done. Or what he has promised to do for us. Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us come to the table of the Lord with prayer. Heavenly Father, We thank you that we have been given such an amazing Savior. And Lord, it is now our privilege to come to him ceremonially as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Please be with us, Lord. And may we be fed so that our souls are full We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.